coming up on In Session. Most leaders are very unprepared for the notion of power and are so afraid to use the power that comes with their role for fear of disappointing people, for fear of alienating people, for feeling being estranged by making a hard call or saying no, that they put that power down. Leaders have to understand that, you know, at your level, leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. In today's episode of In Session, Leading the Judiciary, we discuss how to effectively and successfully transition to an executive leadership role. Our guest is Ron Carucci, an executive consultant and co-author of the best-selling book, Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives. Ron suggests that the story of your rise to power will be told in the faces of those you have led. His research exposes the major obstacles facing new executives and what they can do to overcome those obstacles to lead their organizations to success. We'll discuss the implication of his research for leaders in the judiciary in today's episode. Ron is co-founder and managing partner of Navalent, a consulting firm that helps executives pursue transformational change for their organizations. For over 30 years, he's worked with executives to develop effective strategies to achieve personal and organizational success. Ron has consulted in more than 25 countries on four continents, is a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, and has delivered two well-received TEDx talks. Our host for today's episode is Michael Siegel, Senior Education Specialist at the Federal Judicial Center. Michael, take it away. Ron, thanks so much for joining us. Michael, a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the rather dramatic contrast you identify between what most people envision in an executive leadership position and what they actually find when they get there. While you say this is a normal part of the transition, it's also the cause of many failures. How does a new executive work through that? Well, would that uh, great organizations like like the federal judiciary who prepare people well for it t- tell them in advance uh, about what's coming? Certainly, you know the the program that I got the privilege of joining you for is a great example of what doing uh, you're doing that now. If I were going to nudge you, I would say do it sooner, right? If you know someone's in a pipeline for that career path, do something a year earlier. Start teaching them breadth, context, choice, and connection, even in, in basic nation forms, even earlier. Um, you, you have enough content under your belt now. You know enough of the patterns, enough of the questions, enough of the, the tripwires that folks are going to face at that altitude. Now apply that knowledge to, to get really proactive sooner. Know who's in the pipeline. Know who's interested in being in the pipeline, and cultivate that co- cohort so that you so that your pipeline isn't just getting its formal uh, attention when they arrive at a moment, but but in a, in a constant stream of preparation. Many organizations don't do anything. It's astounding to me how much of the billions of dollars of leadership development are spent on, and, and not that they don't deserve it, but on first-line supervisors and middle management, which, which is appropriate. But the people who have the most disproportionate level of influence over the direction and futures of our organizations are getting the least amount of attention. Because we have this naive assumption that somehow when they arrive up there, they've arrived. So they're fully baked. Versus the reality that they have to unwind so much more learning from their time in the middle, because so much of what happened in the middle is so irrelevant to what happens at the top. Most organizations tell people, that's just a bigger version of what you're already doing. Um, and of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, many leaders, you know, when you look up at the world from the middle of our organization to the top, it's easy to draw conclusions about the perks that come with those roles or the, the broader sense of influence or the power you have or the level of importance or status that come with those roles. And some of that, some of that certainly is true. What you don't see 
is what life is like to have your everything you do on the jumbotron, to have everything you do amplified, misheard, misperceived, misjudged, um, to be blamed for all the mistakes, um, to have everybody you know project onto you all of their authority issues uh, without ever telling you they're doing that. Uh, and to uh, be passive aggressive in how they share information, and suddenly the information sources you used to have dry up. Um, so with all of that, the expression "lonely at the top" is no longer it isn't a cliche at all. Uh, it is a very isolating, um, difficult, and complex uh, experience to be at the top in the top strata of an organization with none of the navigation equipment you prepared for the middle working or or helpful. You have to really completely overhaul how you understand how you participate in the organization. And that can be tough if nobody tells you it's going to happen. It could lead to what you call cognitive dissonance. Well, I think that, you know, if you can at least be aware of what your ingoing assumptions are, what your expectations are, what your what your aspirations are, there, there are certainly things you want from taking on when you take on an assignment of broader responsibility. And it's okay to want those things, whether they're personal career or economic motivations, those are okay to want. But if you only want those and you don't have a sense of broader agency, if you don't, aren't really motivated by making a difference and impact, the sacrifices of the role are going to catch you off guard. Um, if you're really uh, you know, motivated all exclusively by your own career advancement, um, you should rethink whether or not doing that through an executive role is the best way to do it because you're likely to be uh, regret some of what you discover when you get there. Um, so make sure that you're prepared for redefining relationships. People who your direct reports are now your, who your bosses are now your peers. People who your peers now report to you. So there's a whole realigning of relationships. There's a whole new information vacuum that's going to happen as, as information gets filtered to you, gets sifted to you. Um, people who used to tell you everything now are clearly couching what they say and um, and hedging whether or not you're safe to tell the truth to you. Um, you're going to hear all kinds of concoctions about yourself. People making up things you said, people attributing motives to you that you never had, people attributing uh, decisions to you you didn't make. Um, it's just part of the process. And if you don't know and, and write down how to stay true to yourself, how to stay true to the values you want to lead by, how to stay true to the principles that guide your choices, and, and mostly how to lead out loud, how to make sure you are transparent enough that people aren't having to decode you in a way that they miscode you, right? Make sure that people can predict, you know, within, the, within your first six or eight months, make sure that they know how you make decisions. They know how you're going to communicate. They can predict how you're going to react uh, to a frustrating situation. Uh, and you condition them to know that you're, you're a safe place to tell the truth. Does this present a real challenge to introverts? Um, it, it can. It can. I think what where introverts have to sort of um, regulate their what I call extrovert points, right? Because so, so many of us who are introverts are living in an extroverted world. And so we have to m measure our, our capacity because otherwise you just run out of gas mm -hmm. right in the middle of a meeting. <laughs> um, but leading out loud isn't so much about um, – uh, socializing with other people, which is where a lot of introverts get their, they lose their energy. It's just making sure people, um, the, the, the advantage to introverts is that they're very, re they're very reflective. Introverts tend to think a lot in their head. All I'm simply suggesting is put that on the table is say out loud what you're thinking. So people don't have to wonder. Yeah. You don't, don't, don't assume people are reading your mind or are that are come equipped with clairvoyance. Make sure that, um, as you're making choices, as you're assuming, uh, weighing options or um, 
contemplating certain directions, people understand how and why you're doing that. So many leaders don't do that. And especially when the, um, when it, whether you're introverted or extroverted, you think out loud. I, I watched an executive do this where we were in the middle of a, of a business review and a team was presenting uh, an update on a very expensive and ma very major initiative. And the CEO, who was my client, looked very confused. And finally, he turned to me and whispered, and he said, do, do you know what this initiative is? <laughs> I said, no, no, but if you don't, don't let them keep going. Stop and ask for an update. So he, he paused and apologized and said, I'm so sorry. We're seeing hundreds and hundreds of presentations. Forgive me. I want to make sure I'm fully engaged. Can you just remind me of the background of this product? Well, they look confused. And they said, well, six months ago, you asked for this. Mm. He said, I what? And they reminded him in the uh, review two, two, two reviews ago what he said. He was just thinking out loud. He was just wondering about, I wonder what would happen if they took that to mean they should marshal together a team, resources, and money and go do it. Mm. And it was a great but painful cautionary tale to realize when you think out loud, it's not the same as leading out loud. Yeah. If you, if you have no intention that anybody act upon your thoughts, say, I don't want anybody to go do anything. I'm just thinking out loud, and I'd like you to think with me. Uh, otherwise, people will assume you tell them to go do something. Great point. Thank you. You've got a fascinating way of describing the executive transition. You compare it to wing walking and being afflicted with altitude sickness. What can we give the executives to encourage them to let go of one handhold and reach for the next. So for those perhaps unfamiliar with the, the wing walkers of the 20s, you know, aerialists, both as entertainment, but also practically speaking, practically to be able to learn how to refuel aircraft mid-flight, how to walk across the wing. But the, the key rule was never let go of the strut you're holding on to until you have a firm grip on the strut you're going to. Well, for many wing walkers, you had two perils. One, they froze mid-air uh, and clung to both struts, or they let go of one too soon before clinging to the next. And of course, we know where that goes. S similarly, you know, as you rise up in an altitude, uh, and the, uh, you know, if you've ever done many mountain climbing, you know, to acclimatize, you have to climb up, get used to that, climb back down, spend time there, climb up again, get a little higher, so that your lungs can adjust to the thinner levels of oxygen. Climbing up into an organization feels much like both of those things. You have to have a firm grip on the strut you're going to before you can let go of what you know. Uh, and you have to acclimatize to the thinner air. And if the thinner air shows up in many ways, as I mentioned before, in different, differently aligned relationships and new political currents, in how others perceive you, and in the information you have access to. And if you're not prepared, if your lungs are not prepared, if your brain and your emotions are not prepared for how life is different, you'll keep trying to cram that new life into your old life and try and impose what you know and struggle. And of course, that struggle becomes very visible. And that's often what can derail a leader's career is they just are clearly are not um, fitting in to the, the higher, higher ranks of an organization because they're trying to make it too much like the middle. So what's the medicine uh, we could prescribe to avoid that kind of altitude sickness? What, what can be done? Well, again, preparation is really key. You know, when, as, you're, as you're establishing new relationships, go and have, with every new stakeholder, have a conversation, right? Especially if the relationship has changed. If it used to be a peer and now it's a direct report, talk about the new boundary conditions. Talk about how you want to interact with each other. If it was an old boss and now it's a peer, talk about how it is 
you know, how are you going to interact with each other? How are you going to support each other? How are you going to be colleagues? And, and, you know, no longer an expecting of deference. If it's, if it's an old direct report that you no longer have any interaction with, who are still now going to assume they have access to you and want to curry favor with you and, okay, you give me a promotion now. Have a conversation about expectations about where you can and can't socialize and how you can and can't interact with them now. And if you want to preserve certain relationships that, are, that became friendships, talk about how that's going to happen. When you come to realize that all eyes are on you, you're on the jumbotron, people are making things out about you, prepare yourself. You cannot control every narrative out there about you, but you can control some of them. And you can certainly be preemptive about letting people know why you're doing what you're doing, how you make decisions, what your values are, what they can expect. Especially for the many people you may be leading now that are in your physical presence. They're you know, in different geographies or different parts of the world who are really going to be able to make things up about you because they don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, how will you get to know them? How will you allow them to get to know you? It's all about the preparation, Michael, so that when you get there, you're not publicly shell-shocked by what you're finding. Yeah. Very important, especially to have those conversations with colleagues and let them know there's a, it's kind of a new terrain that you're in, right? Yeah. Yep. So what's an executive ascends to power, and in your terminology, they're in the adjust or assert phase. Uh, I love the way you make these different phases because they're, they're very helpful analytically. What dangers still loom in these latter phases, and what strategies can help overcome them? Well, you know, most, most leaders are very unprepared for the notion of power, uh, that they assume that there is this inordinate amount of power that now comes with their um, authority levels in a new role. And I can't tell you how many CEOs and senior executives have said to me, I feel like I have less power than I ever did. Because maneuvering an organization, pulling all the levers of an organization to get it to coordinate and synchronize to get things to happen isn't as easy as declaring a decree. And very often decrees are useless. They they fly into the wind, people hear you, and unless they feel threatened by you, which of course you don't want, because if people are only acting out of fear uh, of you, then you really have a problem, especially when, that, when a crisis hits. The biggest finding in the, in, the, in the research for the book wasn't that power was abused for self-interest, but that power was abandoned out of fear. Most leaders are so afraid to use the power that comes with their role for fear of disappointing people, for fear of alienating people, for feeling being estranged by making a hard call or saying no, that they put that power down in exchange for currying favor, building popularity, being Santa Claus and giving everybody what they want as if that's going to build their equity and build their credibility. And of course, it, it gets you very liked, but it doesn't get you very respected. Leaders have to understand that you know, at your level, leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. If you're unable to say no, if you're unable to you know, put the greater good of the organization before anybody's individual agenda and narrow the focus of the organization so that everybody can succeed, if that's uncomfortable for you, and you say yes to every single idea that comes your way, you're going to dilute the organization's ability and you're going to cause everybody to fail or at least to accept mediocrity. And so you've got to be willing to use the power that comes with your role. You're in, you have access to information that can change people's minds. You have access to relationships that can cause people to, to broaden their network of views. And you have access to, to authority that can actually write injustices. Right. So every organization has things that are unjust about it, unfair processes, unfair opaque, confusing decision uh, or resource allocation mechanisms, you can write those injustices. And that's what your power is for, is to serve the people uh, that you that you lead, to serve the people that you work with and for, so they can become the greatest versions of themselves, so that you can unleash their talents, 
and that you can synchronize the organization in a way that gets the best performance out of everybody. Your opening comments in that segment reminded me of one of our chief judges who once said, when they handed me the reins of power, nobody told me there was nothing attached. <laughs> and uh, he he struggled with figuring out, like you say, how to use power in a, in a positive, productive manner. And and I think the, the avoidance of power, as you say, can be a problem. The The ultimate expression of the transition is, I guess, in the effect stage, when you're actually affecting the organization. How do you know you've gotten there? Well, we found that there were four capabilities that set in our research. We actually wanted to sort of separate the A team from the B team, and we were able to isolate you know, if 50% of the folks in the, re, you know, in, in, by most stats were, were failing within the first 18 months of rising up, we wanted to understand what were the other 50% doing? How were they sticking the landing and being successful? And we found that there were four things that they did effectively that enabled them to do that. One was what we call breadth. So they could stitch the seams of an organization, right? So at the, at the, when you're at the top, you no longer have the luxury of seeing the world through functional eyes, you know, or departments or silos. You have to break, build bridges across those organizations. And these leaders were able to traverse those boundaries and and not see the world through the clerk, the judge, the this or that, but to see it as the judiciary, mm-hmm. to see it as the the, the legal system of, of moving um, decisions through it. And so how the pieces fit together to build that capability. Um, the second was context. These guys could read these people, these leaders could read the tea leaves. They could they, they could ask hard questions. They were curious. They understood why things worked work the way they did, both outside the organization and within it. They could ask contextual questions and understand versus just acting impulsively on their instincts without wondering how things got to be a certain way. The third was choice. These leaders could construct hard choices. They knew what data, what voices, what intuition and experience, what wisdom from others to combine. Uh, into a, a hard or difficult decision. They didn't have a one-size-fits-all approach to choice-making, and they were absolutely not afraid to say no. They were comfortable uh, sort of deferring or turning down some great ideas in the service of the good ideas they'd already committed to. And lastly was their connection, uh, the ability to form trust-based, meaningful relationships with people above them, alongside them, and below them. And the key differentiator of those in the study was they prioritized their stakeholders not by those they needed something from, but they prioritized their stakeholders according to who they could most help, according to who they could help be successful. And they spent time actively looking for ways to enable others to advance their agendas rather than looking for ways to advance their own agenda. So breadth, context, choice, connection. The the, the great news is they're all learnable. The harder part of the data said that it was all for or nothing. Right, so if you only had three of those, you were in the failure group. Hmm. So the great news is they're all learnable. You can build those capabilities, but being good at two of the four is not going to get you to rise to the top and stick. I wanted to pick up on the the ability to say no and go back to something you said before that I wanted to emphasize. You said about disappointing people at a tolerable rate, or something yep. like that. Could you speak to that? That's such an interesting concept. The fact of the matter is, when you're adjudicating many complex decisions uh, and trying to synchronize many agendas, the people below you, they, they, come, they come to your table often as, it's like the, the judiciary UN, right? They come as ambassadors of whatever they, their team or function is. And your goal is to help them see a greater whole. But if you fail to do that, the narrowness of their view is going to be lobbying you for resources, for decisions, for, for favor, 
for favoritism, for support, uh, and it will act, be at the expense of others. But if you're not willing to prioritize your resources, your choices, your initiatives, your strategy in a narrow bandwidth for the good of what the entire organization has to accomplish, which will inevitably disappoint some people. And that's okay, right? People can, people can tolerate not getting their way. But if you train them to think you're going to say yes to everything they ask for because you want to be liked, they'll make you think you're liked. I had one executive who was favorably or not so favorably referred to as the waffle. And people on his team had a very carefully constructed ways to make sure that they called it the last one in phenomenon because the last one in got their way. And so they knew that you wanted to be on his calendar in the final slot before the staff meeting. <laughs> and they would, they would fight for that slot with his, you know, they, they would even bring flowers and candy to the admin who controlled the calendar to, mm-hmm. because they knew whoever got that slot got their way. And so if you're known as somebody who flip-flops a lot, who is indecisive, who is anxious about making a hard decision, and so you're conflict avoidant, um, people will take advantage of that, right? Mm-hmm. People will exploit that for their own good, uh, and they won't respect you. So disappointment is not a bad thing. Saying no is not a bad thing, especially if you can explain why. Um, if you're fickle, people will know it, and then they'll, they'll, they'll exploit that as well. I want to go back to the concept of power. You talk about positional, relational, and informational power. Can you distinguish those for us a little bit? Sure. Many leaders are, are you know, assume that positional power, you know, the, the formal authority um, that comes along with their role is their only source of power. And usually what they're surprised to find is that it's the least reliable source of, of influencing the organization, in, especially in a very complex or matrixed or networked organization. Certainly there are times you have to adjudicate, you have to declare, you have to make a decision that's unilateral. But, but most leaders understand that you should, that should be the exception of a norm. But your, your, your relational power, you, you have access to networks of people, you have access to other people of influence that can help those you lead, you know, l- learn, grow, stretch. You can form relationships, very intimate trust-based relationships with those you lead in order for them to transform. Your relationship with those you lead is the vehicle of impact. That will be the determinant of, of a degree of trust that will allow them to let you influence them, to let you stretch them, to let you challenge them, or not. So the intimate relationships with those you have, uh, with those you lead, are, are the determinants of how accountable people will be to your leadership, not your formal authority. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, you know, your information power. You have access to points of view, access to data, um, access to perspectives, a wider range of ideas that your people don't. And sometimes you need to help people change their mind. You need to help people learn. You need to help challenge assumptions in the organization. And that information source used to be information was power, but now information is ubiquitous. Today, it's whose interpretation of the information prevails that gets you powerful and your your insights, your perspective on something. This is why so many people ask, want to know from a leader, what do you think about this or what do you see about this? And so sharing your point of view, not as dogma, not as fact, but as a point of view, but sharing your perspective can help people ground how they make their own choices, even if they disagree with you. Mm-hmm. You made reference to the judiciary showing that you have an awareness of the public sector context. How else would you apply your research, which is based largely, I think, on the private sector, to the public sector environment? You know, I mean, one of the challenges in, in many public sector environments, I have several federal government clients. You guys do tend to be a bit bureaucratic, 
and, and cumbersome to work with. Um, and there's a, lots of regulations and rules that sometimes can conflict, making navigational experiences harder for leaders. Um, and so I, the, the two things that often requires is a lot of heroics, a, a lot of, you know, sort of backflips to get things done. And leaders need to prepare for that. They, to, to serve the public in, in those kinds of roles, you have to have a level of resilience that allows you to prevail. Every organization has constraints. You know, that happens to be yours. It's not like it's the private sector is some freewheeling, you know, get anything done at all costs. It's not that either, right? Mm -hmm. um, but so, so it's pick your poison. And so, uh, <laughs> and you have to be willing to also challenge status quo. You have to be willing to see where there are places where there are rules and processes that just don't make any sense. They're antiquated. They're left over from another era. Um, they don't match current context. You have to be willing to say, this isn't the only way to do this. Just because we always have doesn't mean we can't change it. And you have to, so your, your championing of change, your ability to lead away from the gravitational pull of the familiar, uh, th those two things, that and resilience are probably the two most important things leaders need to bring to lead effectively in the public sector. Your notion of an exceptional executive, and I assume that's the 50% that, that are more successful, yep. how, how do they balance instinct with data when making tough decisions? Well, they first, the first thing they do is they understand that both are required, right? So, that, that, you know, you have all the many leaders who are predisposed to wanting lots of data and they get what is commonly referred to as analysis paralysis. They get buried in data. And you have the, the cowboys and cowgirls who are just want to, you know, I just trust my gut. You always hear that statement, um, which, of course, is a little bit arrogant to assume that your gut is that reliable of a barometer for anything. Um, certainly wisdom and intuition play an important role, right? That you are in the role you're in because of the benefit of your experience. So that certainly is a source. But but great choices are, are a combination of data, intuition or wisdom, other voices, who to include, and the combination of them. So ask yourself, what data do you typically go to as a source? What data do you exclude? That's a really important question to ask. And why? Who do you typically go to to get input from or to get advice from or to get a perspective from and more so who are you avoiding who do you never ask and why because if you're only asking people who you know are going to tell you what you want to hear you're setting yourself up to fail you have to actually actively seek out dissent hmm. actively seek out dueling fact bases go to people who you know will contradict your views and see what they think because that will just help you increase the quality of your decision it may not change it but you'll know what you're up against in implementing that decision I totally endorse the idea of consulting with dissenting opinions, even even if you have to work hard to do it. It's yep. it's well worth the effort, absolutely. It also builds great relationships, right? The people who don't see the world as you do are the people who can become your greatest allies, even if you don't agree. You quoted from Alvin Teffler's book, Power Shift, written in 1991, where he describes a revolution. We're back to the question of power. He reflected on a revolution in the nature of power. Is that still happening? Is it over? Or is there a new one? And how has social media affected anything? Well, I think that it's a very important point. I think so, social media is now fueling the power shift, you know, from f formal authority, people with resources, white normative males, right? There are so many needed power shifts to, to get a, a, a more well-distributed set of power resources to, into the hands of those who have been disempowered, who have been disaffected by uh, un, un, unlevel playing fields. 
Um, I do think social media is a has become both a powerful but also dangerous accelerant of power because it in, a, it in and of itself has become a source of power that's been so irresponsibly used. And I think we were not we as a as a society were unprepared for what that power that that source of power that tool could do and how it can shape people's views, how it can destabilize governments and entire nations. And I do hope that we are soon heading into an era where that rebalances because I think we're really, we're so far over our skis when it comes to it that, and we don't even know it. Um, I do think that though, and you and I are qualified for this, Michael, but the white male oligarchies that have, have, have enjoyed a level of control for so long need to recognize that letting go and distributing that power doesn't make us less powerful. It actually makes us more powerful. But to have concentrated power so much at the top of wealth structures, hierarchies, and certain identities is hurting everybody, including us. And so it is an important moment in our time where we have to not make people fight for power that, they, that, that is rightfully theirs. Because the more we make them fight for it, the, the more irresponsible they'll be with it when they get it. We have to be willing to learn to share and distribute power in a more responsible and proactive way so that the people who have not had it you know, much like a rising executive who doesn't know how to use it when they rise up, they won't know how to use it when they get it. Um, and so we have to do this in a mindful, thoughtful, generous, proactive way so that the playing field is more level for everybody and that they all, everybody on that playing field now knows how to play on it. I rarely think of myself as an oligarch, but um, when you put it that way... <laughs> well, you and I probably have no thoughts of ourselves that way, but the problem is to those who have different identities, we're experienced that way, yes. even if we don't intend to be. Yes, absolutely. What's the most important message you have for leaders in the federal judiciary? You know, I, I, so I have, I have clients in several very important government agencies, you know, who are very mission-driven. You know, some, some folks in the intelligence community, some folks in the uh, other lawmaking bodies. And the thing I love about folks in these, in these groups is how incredibly mission-driven they are. If there was ever a time where justice was being called into question in our nation, where can somebody get a fair shot? You are not just adjudicating individual case decisions or case law every day. You are shaping a culture of justice. Never lose sight of the broader impact you have collectively. Yes, you work in many, many different districts and isolated ways, but, but as the entire judiciary goes, so goes our country's belief in getting a fair shot, that the system is not rigged, that there are people on the bench who really do care about fairness, equity, and justice in all forms. So never forget about, how, you know, don't in the middle of the bureaucracy or the day-to-day -day decisions or the day-to-day -day stuff you do, please never lose sight of the potent impact you're making on the entire country perception of justice. Thank you. That's beautifully stated. We really appreciate that. Finally, where do people go to learn more about you and your work? You can come to our website um, at navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. I have a brand new book coming out in about a month. It's the follow-up research study to, to Rising to Power. The book's called, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks so much for joining us today. Michael, it was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Michael. And thank you for listening. To hear more episodes of In Session, visit the Executive Education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap podcast. You can also search for and subscribe to In Session on your mobile device. In Session, Leading the Judiciary is produced by Shelley Easter and directed and edited by Craig Bowden. Our program coordinator is Anna Glauschkova. 
Special thanks to Chris Murray. I'm Lori Murphy. Thanks for listening. Until next time.